this is Crystal from the Spooky Barber Babes, and today I bring you the case of Kitty Genovese. Now, this one isn't a serial killer. Um, I will definitely say that. Um, this is a one-off thing, but I figured since this past week I did uh, Charles Edmund Cullen and what he did, well, not what he did, but what his case did, for um, legal standards for the medical facility, I wanted to do this case because Kitty Genovese did something not for a medical community, but for the police system as we know it. Um, there's also been, uh, there's the Genovese syndrome, which we'll be talking about as well, that was a part of U.S. psychology textbooks for decades, um, but this also did something really big for uh, the 911 system that we have. So, sit back and enjoy. Let's get started. Kitty Genovese was born Catherine Suzanne Kitty Genovese on July 7th of 1935. She was born the eldest of five children to Italian-American parents Rachel and Vincent Genovese in Brooklyn, New York. She was raised Catholic and in a brownstone residence at 29 St. John's Place in Park Slope, which was a western Brooklyn neighborhood, mainly with uh, families of Italian and Irish heritage. During her teenage years, um, she attended the all-girl Prospect Heights High School, and most people recalled her being self-assured beyond her years and having this wonderful sunny disposition about herself. However, in 1954, after Rachel, her mother, witnessed a murder, the Genovese's family moved to New Canaan, Connecticut. However, Kitty herself, recently graduated from high school, remained in Brooklyn with her grandparents because she was about to get married, so she just, she didn't want to move. Sadly, later that year, I think they said by the end of 1954, um, Kitty's marriage was null and void. It was a it was null. There's yeah, nothing really much about it. Now, Kitty ended up moving to an apartment in Brooklyn where she found herself working clerical jobs, which she did not like. They were unappealing to her and she was just no go not having it. By the late 1950s, she became a bartender. And in August of 1961, she was briefly arrested for bookmaking. Now, for those of you that don't know what bookmaking is, it's basically bet illegal betting on horses or other sports. At the time, hers was horse racing, and she was her and her friend D were making money off these bar patrons, placing bets through them. They each were fined fifty dollars, and Genovese lost her job because of it. Now, she continued bartending and became held a position at Eve's 11th Hour Bar on Jamaica Ave and 193rd Street in Hollis, Queens. She ended up becoming, well, I don't know if she became a manager or she just started managing the bar because the owner was, quote, absentee. Now, she worked a lot of double shifts 
because she was trying to save up money that she was going to use to open an Italian restaurant. Now, she, in 1963, uh, got together with Mary Ann Zalonko, and the two lived in Kew Gardens apartment at 82 and 70 Austin Street. Uh, now, on the early morning hours of March 13th, 1964, at approximately 2.30 in the morning, Kitty Genovese left the bar that she was working at and drove home in her red Fiat. Now, while waiting for a traffic light to change on Hoover Ave, she was spotted by a gentleman by the name of Winston Mosley. He was sitting in his parked Chevrolet Corvair. Now, it took Genovese about 45 minutes to get home and park her car in the Kews Garden Long Island Railroad Station parking lot, which was about 100 feet, and for those of you that don't know our system, it's about 30 meters from her apartment's door. Um, but she parked in an, it's, it was in the, like the rear of the building and like kind of like an alleyway. Well, this poor woman was walking towards her apartment complex when Mosley, who had followed her home, exited his vehicle, which he had parked at the bus stop on the corner of Austin Street, and armed with a hunting knife, he came up and approached Kitty from behind. Kitty Genovese ran towards the front of the building, and Winston Mosley ran after her, took over her, and sadly stabbed her in the back twice now you would think well there was screaming right Genovese had screamed oh my god he stabbed me help me now several neighbors heard her cry but only a few of them recognized it as a sign a cry for help a neighbor Robert Moser shouted at the attacker, let that girl alone. Mosley ran away and Genovese slowly made her way towards the rear entrance of her building. Now, mind you, she was seriously injured and bleeding, but because of where she was at, she was out of the view of any witnesses that could have helped her. Now, witnesses did say that they saw Mosley get in his car and drive away, only to return 10 minutes later. Now, when he came back, he had a wide brim hat on and he was searching the parking lot and the train station. And when he finally came back up to the apartment complex, he found Genovese who was almost unconscious and she was just lying in the hallway in the back of the building where the only thing that prevented her from going inside the building was a locked door. Now she's out of the view of the streets. Anyone who may have heard or seen anything of the initial attack, they, they could no longer see her. So Mosley decided he was going to stab her several more times before raping her, stealing about $49 from her and running away. Now, the attacks on her spanned half an hour. And most... Like there was reports said that she had knife wounds on her hands that attempted that she that you know showed that she attempted to try to defend herself. Now, 
the worst part about it is a friend, a very close friend of hers, Sophia Ferrara, found Genovese shortly after the second attack and managed to hold her in her arms until the ambulance had arrived. Now, here's where things start to get a little upsetting. There's records of the earliest calls to police that are, it, it's unclear, and they were not given a high priority. Now, this incident occurred four years before New York City implemented its 911 emergency call system. One witness said his father had called the police after the initial attack and reported that a woman was beat up but got up and staggered away. Now, again, this person said she got beat up. Genovese yelled, he stabbed me. A few minutes after the final attack, another witness, Carl Ross, called friends for advice on what to do before calling the police. Now, again, this attack happened that started around 3.15 in the morning lasted about a half hour, which would have put it about 3.45. Ambulances didn't pick up Kitty Genovese until 4.15 a.m. She died en route to the hospital and was buried on March 16, 1964, in Lakeview Cemetery in New Canaan, Connecticut. Now, I know you all remember me talking about her girlfriend, Mary Ann Zelanko. Well, she was questioned by Detective Mitchell Sang at 7 a.m. on the morning after the murder. She was later interrogated for six hours by John Carroll and Jerry Burns, two homicide detectives. And basically what they did was they questioned her based on the relationship that she had because they were girlfriends. Um, now, police also kind of focused when they questioned neighbors about like the couple and oh could this have been you know a setup could marianne have killed her girlfriend and all this other stuff so it, it just kind of seems like they were kind of sticking on the fact that oh she was a lesbian so it must be an, an initial thing which is horrible um but initially Zel uh Zel was considered to be a suspect um, and kind of the only one that they had. But on March 19th, 1964, six days after the stabbing and three days after she was buried, um, yeah, three days. Wow. I just, sorry, I had to go back and be like, whoa, 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 was it really just three days? Yeah. Dang. Uh, Mosley was arrested for suspected robbery in Ozone Park after a television set was discovered in the trunk of his car. Uh, Mosley's car was searched by a local man, not even police. He was searched by Raul Cleary, who became suspicious when he saw Winston Mosley pretty much in his neighbor's house taking out his television. Uh, when Cleary came out of his home and questioned Mosley, who claimed to quote-unquote be a removal worker, uh, he, Cleary consulted with another neighbor, Jack Brown, that said the homeowners were not moving and Cleary had called the police. Now, uh, Jack Brown had disabled Mosley's car to ensure that he could not get away before police arrived. 
Detectives recalled that a white car similar to Mosley's had been reported at by some of the witnesses um, the night of Genovese's murder and that detectives Carol and Sang were then informed. During questioning, Mosley admitted to the murders of Genovese and two other women. Annie Mae Johnson, who had been shot and burned to death in her apartment in South Ozone Park a few weeks earlier, and 15-year-old Barbara Kralik, who had been killed in her parents' Springfield Gardens home the previous July. Now, here's where things get a little messy because he can only get stuck for two out of those murders, not the 15-year-old, which is very upsetting. Now, Winston Mosley was born in, 19, in March 2nd of 1935 in Manhattan, um, and he worked as a uh, Remington Rand machine operator. He lived in Ozone Park, and that was in Queens, but he was, um, what he did at his job was he was a tab operator. He was he made the punch cards that were used for data input for digital computers. Now, here's the thing. Mosley was married with three kids and had no priors, no criminal record. Now, where he was, when he was in custody, he admitted to killing um, Kitty Genovese. He detailed the attack to police officers and it corroborated all the physical evidence that they found at the scene. Um, and the worst part about it is, he said his motive for this attack was simply to kill a woman, saying he preferred to kill women because they were, quote, easier and didn't fight back. He basically said that he got up at two o'clock in the morning and his night, his wife, who worked night shifts as a nurse, you know, he left his three kids at home while his wife was at work and drove through Queens to, quote, find a victim. Mosley just happened to catch sight of Genovese on her way home and followed her home and killed her. He confessed to murdering and sexually assaulting two other women and to committing between 30 and 40 burglaries. Subsequent psychiatric evaluations basically suggested that he was an actual necrophile, which for most of you guys that don't know what necrophilia is um, and what a necrophile is, is they are people that prefer to have sex with corpses so which is um extremely disturbing considering he he's he, yeah i don't know how his wife handled that confession now mosley was charged with the murder of genovese but he was not charged with the other two murders that he kind of said, oh, I did, I did, I did. Um, and the main reason why he wasn't charged in the the murder for Barbara Kralik was because there was a little bit of a complication with that. A man by the name of Alvin Mitchell had confessed to killing Barbara himself. So that kind of did a, th a thing. But Mosley's trial for the murder of Kitty Genovese began on June 8th in 1964 and was presided by the judge J. Irwin Shapiro. Uh, Mosley basically pleaded not guilty, um, but his attorney later changed the plea to not guilty by reason of insanity. Yay, gotta love insanity pleas. Um, 
During the testimony, he basically described the events of the murder to a T. Um, and then he also, again, um, talked about two other murders that he had confessed to and murdered. I cannot talk. Numerous other burglaries and rapes on top of this during his trial as part of his testimony. It took the jury seven hours of deliberating between, before they came back with a guilty verdict at 10.30 p.m. on June 11th, 1964. Now, on June 15th, Winston Mosley was sentenced to death for the murder of Kitty Genovese. The jury foreman read his sentencing and Mosley had showed no emotion. Um, most spectator, well, some spectators applauded and cheered at this sentencing and judge Shapiro added into this that I don't believe in capital punishment, but when I see a monster like this, I wouldn't hesitate to pull the switch myself. Now on June 23rd, Mosley appeared as a defense witness in the trial of Alvin Mitchell for the murder of Barbara Kralik. Basically, they tried to say that, you know, oh, well, look, there's some doubt here. But, ha, ah, with this came, which horrible, he was granted immunity from prosecution for the murder of Barbara Kralik. Um, So he had testified that he killed Kralik. Uh, the trial produced a hung jury, but luckily justice prevailed for Barbara Kralik and Alvin Mitchell was convicted in a second trial that uh, Mosley was not a part of. On June 1st, 1967, New York Court of Appeals found that Mosley should have been able to argue that he was medically insane at the sentencing hearing when the trial court found that he had been legally sane. So sadly, instead of getting uh, the original death sentence, he only got, um, his sentence was reduced to life, life imprisonment, which Basically, what that means is that the Court of Appeals said, no, he should have been able to argue that he wasn't, that he wasn't uh, medically sane, um, even though he was legally sane. So, technically, I guess, because the court was like, oh, no, he can stay on trial. He's legally sane. They didn't really do, I guess, the proper medical, uh, like, psychiatric diagnosis and shit, but, like, ugh. This man grinds my gears. <laughs> On March 18th, 1968, this is a day that, like, his verdict should have been changed, like, 100% from this point on. Winston Mosley had escaped from prison because he was being transported back from Meyer Memorial Hospital in Buffalo, New York, because he had to get minor surgery for self-inflicted injury. What he did was he hit a correctional officer, stole his, his gun, and fled to a nearby vacant home owned by Grand Isle couple, Mr. and Mrs. Matthew Kulaga. Now, he was there for three days. And sadly, unfortunately, on March 21st, the Kulagas decided they wanted to go check on their house. And sadly, while they were there, they encountered Mosley, who for at least a little over an hour, held them hostage, bind and gagged Mr. Matthews, and raped his wife in front of him. He then took the couple's car and fled. 
Now, Mosley then traveled to Grand Island on March 22nd and broke into another house and held a woman and daughter hostage for two hours, but in this case, he released them unharmed. He did surrender to police shortly after and was charged with escape and kidnapping, which he pled guilty to. And what was he given? Two additional 15-year sentences to run concurrently with his life sentence. But explain to me why he only got... He, two charges for escape and kidnapping, but he didn't get a rape charge for raping Miss Kulaga. That is what pisses me off the most about this case. And it's just like, oh, it angers me so badly. Like he basically got a slap on the wrist, like as if the holding the Kulaga's hostage and raping Miss Kulaga was just nothing to the courts. Oh no, well, we didn't catch him in the act, you know, and he didn't admit to it. Uh, so we, we can't do anything about it. Pisses me off. <sighs> Sorry, I digress. <laughs> in September of 1971, Mosley had participated in the Attica prison riot. In the same decade, though, he obtained a Bachelor of Arts in Sociology in prison from Niagara University. In 1984, he did become eligible for parole. And during his first parole hearing, he told the parole board that the notoriety he faced due to his crimes made him a victim. Stating, for a victim outside, it's one time or one hour or a one minute affair, but for the person who's caught, it's forever. Mosley claimed at the same trial, as well at the same hearing, he never intended to kill Kitty Genovese and that he considered her murder to be a mugging because people do kill people when they mug them sometimes. The board denied his request for parole. Thank God, but let me tell you something. That right there pisses me off. You, you are, he basically just victim shamed any victim. Like, okay, you got mugged. Well, I'm sorry, you died. That's not my problem. I'm alive, but I got caught. So I'm now publicly shamed for the rest of my life. Yeah, dude, you are. Like, what the hell? <laughs> this case has driven me nuts doing all the research and just hearing how nonchalantly he talked about it and just how nonchalantly he talked about, like, just in general of just, oh, I'm still alive. This person's dead. Uh, so they're not feeling anything. No, but guess what, asshole? The family is. Oh, God. Sorry. Again, they on March 13th, 2008, the 44th anniversary of Kitty Genovese's murder, he had another parole hearing. Yay. He continued to show little remorse for murdering Genovese, and his parole got denied again. Booyah. Now, Genovese's brother, Vincent, was unaware of the 2008 hearing until he was contacted by reporters from New York Daily News. Vincent had reportedly never recovered from his sister's murder, quote, saying, this brings back what happened to her. The whole family remembers. Now, Mosley was denied parole an 18th time in November of 2015, and in, on March 28th, 2016, he died in prison at the age of 81, serving 52 years in prison, which made him, at the time, one of the longest-serving inmates in the New York State prison system. Now, can I please go on to say... This man got to live to be 81 years old, where Kitty didn't make it past 28. 
I'm sorry. What? Like, his convictions read off murder, second degree robbery, and secondary attempted kidnapping. Those were the three things he was charged for. He wasn't charged for violating a corpse. He wasn't charged with raping a, a, a person who was alive. He wasn't charged with, um, what was it? Uh, not trespassing because I think he did get charged for, no, even that, like looking at reading like all his convictions, he wasn't even charged with trespassing on that case. Um, I think he was only charged with, do, 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 do. Yeah, no, he was only charged with escaping kidnapping. He wasn't charged with trespassing on any of this. Like, the hell? Ugh. Hmm, I digress. Pardon me, my brain is like mm, angry. Very, very angry. Um, and considering one of the convictions is considered murder A1, which is a degree less prior to September 1st of 1974 in the state of New York, which, excuse me, no. I just, I don't understand. This man got to live out his life. Even if it was behind bars, he still got to live out his life where a whole family, siblings, mom and dad, they, they lost their, their sister, their daughter. They lost a life that, you know, memories that they can never make. It angers me now. Oh, <sighs> now I know I've been like really big on this and very like angry, but so my thing is there is this syndrome called the Genovese syndrome that came out of this where um, it was reported, let me say this, um, hmm, there was reports saying that the witness, no witnesses called or did anything to help her. Now, this case did not receive much media like immediate media attention at all. Um, it took a remark made by then New York City Police Commissioner Michael J. Murphy to the New York Times editor, uh, A.M. Rosenthal, over lunch, where Rosenthal later quoted Murphy saying, that Queen's story is one for the books. Now that was the motivation for the Times to publish an investigative report. Now, again, very angry about this. Um, an article was written by Martin Gainsbourg and that was published on March 27th, 1964, two weeks after the murder, claiming that 38 witnesses saw the murder, but um, it's no one called. Now it said that the headline when this was published reduced the number to 37 but the headline read 37 who saw murder didn't call the police now that has been quoted and reproduced with a quote corrected headline 38 who saw murder didn't call the police now basically what it's what it went into saying that um, quotes from the article by quote, unidentified neighbors who saw the attack, but deliberated before finally getting another neighbor to call police said, I quote, I didn't want to get involved. Um, many saw the story and basically uh, it was just 
it kind of blew up a little bit. Um, there's been plenty of things, I hate to say, in like public eye, like magazines, uh, movies, and things like that, that people have taken and kind of ran with. I mean, you've got a science fiction author, Harlan Ellison, stated that, quote, 38 people watched Genovese, quote, get knifed to death in New York streets. This was in a June 1988 article in the magazine of fantasy and science fiction, uh, and it was later reprinted into Harlan's book, and it referred to the murder as, quote, witnessed by 38 neighbors, not one of whom made the slightest effort to save her, to scream at the killer or even call the police. He cites that, um, like the report that claimed one man viewing the murder from his third floor apartment window stated that he rushed to turn up his radio so he wouldn't hear the woman screams. Now, I, in all the details that I've read, no one said that. I mean, it looks like it was kind of just made up. Um, and supposedly that the public reaction to murders happening in their neighborhood, it, it didn't change. Like the public's reaction, um, there was an article dated in the New York Times on December 28th, 1974, which was 10 years after the murder, that a 27-year-old Sandra Zaylor was beaten to death early Christmas morning in an apartment within a building that overlooked the site of Genovese's attacks. Again, they quote saying, neighbors again said they heard screams and quote, fierce struggles, but did nothing. Now, what kind of ticks me off about this is a lot of the research, there were people that witnessed it and that yelled at the attacker um, for Kitty and whatnot, but it just, it didn't get taken seriously. Now, with this said, um, there have been plenty of psychological researchers that have actually come out and, you know, some have suggested that um, the interpretation of the murder as an issue of bystander intervention is incomplete. And this was by psychologist Frances Sherry. Um, she pointed to research um, that came from Borofsky and Shotland that basically stated that people, especially at the time, were very unlikely to intervene if they believed that a man was attacking his wife or girlfriend. Um, and suggested that maybe it might have been a better understood in terms of male-female power relations. Um, there's also other, um, I, I hate to say, there's, there's another report that was stated by social psychologist John M. Darley and Bib Latani. I'm so sorry if I butchered that name. And basically it's saying that contrary to common expectations that the larger numbers of bystanders will actually decrease the likelihood that someone will step forward and help mainly because onlookers see that others are just watching and not helping. Um, they believe that somebody else in the crowd will know better how to help or they're uncertain of helping because there's so many people watching. And this is why this case has actually been featured in psycho um, social psychology textbooks, not just in the United States, but also in the United Kingdom. Now, in September of 2007, um, there, the uh, American psychologist published 
an examination of a, the factual base coverage of the Genovese murders in the textbooks. Um, three authors kind of concluded the fact that there's more to it um, and it's more kind of like fictional because of the largely based inaccurate newspaper coverage at the time. I mean, you got to think it, it, it was wrong. Um, they, it's been stated that there's so many inaccuracies in, um, like statements and stuff that it's just, it, there's just a lot that doesn't make a lot of sense. Now, um, there are about, I want to say 10 textbooks that have the Genovese case in all of them. Eight of those textbooks should suggest that witnesses watched from their windows as Genovese was murdered, while two textbooks stated that some or most of the witnesses heard but could not see the attack. Now, none of them talk about the guy that yelled out the window to get him to run off the first time. Now, again, this there's been a lot going on. Um, especially in, in recent time. So there was uh, a lot of claims about the original Times article. Now, a study that was, con that was done in 2007 but confirmed in 2014 found many of the purported facts about the murder to be unfounded. Uh, stating there is, quote, no evidence for the presence of 38 witnesses or that witnesses observe the murder or that witnesses remain inactive. Uh, now, in March of 2016, after Mosley died, the Times called their second story, quote, flawed, stating, while there was no question that the attack occurred and that some neighbors ignored cries for help, the portrayal of 38 witnesses as fully aware and unresponsive was erroneous. The article grossly exaggerated the number of witnesses and what they had perceived. None saw the attack in its entirety. Only a few had a glimpse of part of it or recognized the cries for help. Many thought they had heard lovers or drunks quarreling. There were two attacks, not three. And afterwards, two people did call the police. A 70-year-old woman ventured out and cradled the dying victim in her arms until they arrived. Miss Genovese died on the way to the hospital. Now, here's where things get interesting. The way that it was explained was that the layout of the complex and um, the fact that the, the two attacks took place in separate locations, that there was no one that actually saw the entire, um, like, the, the entire thing, which clearly, I mean, we have already stated this. So nobody knew that there was, like, the guy that yelled down didn't know that there was a second attack. He only, you know, yeah, it, it, it sucks. Um, but it says only one witness, Joseph Finks, was aware that Genovese was stabbed in the first attack, while only Carl Ross was aware of it in the second attack. Um, many were unaware that an assault or homicide had even taken place. Some thought they saw or heard a domestic quarrel, a drunken brawl, or a group of friends leaving the bar when Mosley first approached Genovese. The initial attack punctured her lungs, and that kind of led to her eventual death from asphyxiation. Um, sadly, that meant that it was unlikely that she was able to scream at any type of volume. Now, in 2015, there 
is a documentary and it features Kitty's brother, William, and it discovered that other crime reporters knew of many problems with the story, even back in 1964. Um, immediately after the story broke, uh, police reporter Danny Meehan discovered many inconsistencies in the original article in the Times. Uh, he asked Times reporter Martin Gainsbourg why his article failed to reveal that witnesses did not feel that a murder was happening. And Gainsbourg replied, quote, saying, it would have ruined the story. Now, because he didn't want to jeopardize his career by attacking a powerful figure like Rosenthal, Meehan kept his findings secret and passed his notes along to WNBC reporter Gabe Pressman. Pressman taught a journalism course and some of his students called <laughs> Rosenberg and confronted him with the evidence. Rosenthal was irate that his editorial decisions were being questioned by journalism students and berated Pressman in a phone call. Now, in October 12th of 2016, the Times appended an editor's note to the online version of the article, quote, stating, later reporting by the Times and others has called into question significant elements of this account. Um, now, with this all said, in the New York's, um, there was a report on how iconic murder had helped create the 911 system. And basically, PBS, um, it was a confirming report of how papers and media outlets ran with the story. They also added nearly a dozen books, and when it came to film, mentioned James Solomon's film, The Witness, more than once. The reports, the genesis of 911 section noted that the up until the late 1960s, there was no centralized number for people to call in case of an emergency. Now, I'm not sure if the if the psychology books still have the case in it. Um, and I don't, you know, I mean, it's been referred to in multiple different, you know, film and TV and pop culture and whatnot. Um, do I know if they still have the inner, like the Genovese investigation still in the, um, the textbooks? No, I do not. Do I know if they um, still reference the case and just kind of like teach like, hey, this is what can happen. Um, this is why, you know, you don't always believe everything you read. And I mean, that's what I would say, like, hey. Um, but sadly, it took Kitty Genovese's murder for New York to pretty much get a centralized local number for emergencies called 911. Now we all know we have the 911 system. It's our emergency response number here in the United States. It may be something else for somewhere else. Um, but you have your 911 for all emergency calls and all non-emergency calls are to go to the local police station using their direct number. This way the 911 uh, hotline number, does, or it's not even a hotline, but the 911 emergency system does not get clogged up with Oh, my cat's stuck up in a tree. Um, but it's sad that it took a, a murder of a woman and a man who just didn't give a shit about human life in general to create that system. And it's a shame that, you know, nobody, the few people that did hear her, I mean, it was the middle, of the middle of the morning. You're talking like people are asleep. So, yeah, people probably heard it started out of sleep and didn't think anything of it. 
when they the scream stopped. And then by the time the second the second part of the attack happened, she couldn't scream. There was nothing. They could hear nothing. So I don't know. I just I feel like it really sucks. My heart goes out to the family that um, had to deal with this. The siblings that are still dealing with it. I mean, it's got to suck losing a sibling. I couldn't imagine losing any of mine. But um, yeah, I would love to hear what you guys have to say about this. Because this is definitely one for the books for me. Um, it, again, not a serial killer. But definitely a change to society. And in more ways than one. I mean... I would love to get my hands on one of the textbooks to see just what the textbook itself says about the case. But again, this is also another one of those stories where it's just like, okay, a, a media outlet, a news media outlet basically went, mm, we're going to take this story and run with it, but we're going to change some things to make it more interesting more juicy, make more people get into it. But I mean, sadly, the Genovese syndrome is a thing where, you know, people will hear or witness a crime and not step up or say something either out of fear of not knowing what to do, fear of getting hurt themselves or, you know, something like that. I mean, I understand that, but to not pick up a phone and call 911, even if you're just witnessing something, you don't have to know all the details. You just need to know where the hell you're at. Call 911, get them there, and let the police handle it. They're trained for that, unless, you know, you're an undercover. Then, or not undercover, but, like, off-duty. Then you have a right to step in. But as a citizen and a civilian, the most that you should do is, at least, bare minimum, is call the cops. You know, you could be the difference between somebody dying or somebody living. And I hate to say it like that, but it's the truth. So, I hope this gives you guys all some food for thought. Um, again, I apologize that my last week episode came out on Friday and not Thursday. Mental health is a shitstorm. Um, but we are back on schedule and I will see you guys next week. Same time, same place. Stay spooky, everyone.